You are listening to the Global Politics of Counterterrorism, a podcast series from the International Center for Counterterrorism. In this series, we explore recent geopolitical shifts and the impact on human rights and the counterterrorism agenda. Hi, my name is Alexander von Rosenbach, and I am the business manager here at the International Center for Counterterrorism. I also have the pleasure today of serving as the host of ICCT's new podcast series, The Global Politics of Counterterrorism. Today, I'm joined by Noreen Fink. Noreen is executive director of the Sufan Center and a senior advisor at the International Peace Institute. Previously, she was a senior policy advisor on counterterrorism and sanctions at the UK's mission to the United Nations, and she's also worked with UN Women and UN CTED, amongst many other positions. Noreen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. It's great to be here. I wanted to uh, start today's conversation by unpacking Noreen a little okay. bit as a person. I think it's always important when we have high-profile experts here to learn a little bit about uh, how you got into your position. And I'd love if you could tell me how and, and the why of, found you, of how you found yourself in this role in CT. Sure, you're starting with the big questions. Um, well, I've had, as you said, a, a sort of unique experience in being able to work with think tanks. So I've been working with IPI and the Global Center in New York, and certainly now at the Sufan Center, but also working with the UN, as you said, in CTED, UN Women, and they're very different roles, right, at very different bodies. And then with the UK, where I sat on the Counterterrorism Committee, the Sanctions Committee, um, and worked on a lot of GA activities. So I think that 360-degree view of policymaking and how CT work has developed in the international space has been quite unique. I don't think I could have predicted it, certainly, Mm -hmm. Um, especially as my undergrad was medieval art history. (laughs) I don't think it was a straightforward um, assumption uh, about where I'd end up, but I did work on gender and conflict spaces and representation of that, so it's not too too separate from what I do. Um, And so, I, yeah, that's how I I got here. Great. Thank you for, for that. I want to now turn to the main uh, the main point of the discussion today. Obviously, the name of the podcast is Global Politics and Counterterrorism. And I really want to unpack a little bit um, what we've seen in most recent months, um, of course, dominated by Russian aggression in Ukraine, but also the broader context that we've been engaged with, the rise of China in the, as an international actor to be considered, and also to some degree, at least in the field of CT, the withdrawal or the pullback of the United uh, States from uh, over the last couple of years. And given your experience on the international stage, I'd love if you could help set the scene for us from an international perspective, in particular looking at uh, what you think the UN's work on counterterrorism has done and has been impacted by over the last few years uh, with an eye to this global uh, power dynamics that have been evolving. Sure, that's a, another big question. I think that the CT agenda in the international space, and particularly at the UN, really benefited from an unprecedented level of consensus from the get-go. You know, starting with those days after 9-11 and the adoption of Resolution 1373, it's really been a space of unpredictable, unpredictably cooperative behavior among Security Council members. And I think that's been both a benefit and a challenge at times. Um, the benefit has been that, you know, despite uh, the wars in Iraq, Syria, and all of that, um, the Council has found common ground on on many counterterrorism issues. I think there's like 40 plus resolutions in that time. 
Um, the challenge is also that, you know, it has been exceptionalized and some of that cooperation then doesn't really look like the realities on the ground when you do think about, you know, the ongoing conflicts and things like that. So we've had a very siloed, but in many ways, very proactive counterterrorism space. Um, you know, the, the work at the council is always shaped by great powers and by the permanent members and to a large degree. I wouldn't say only degree. People always focus on the P5, but we've had about a hundred member states rotate through the council, and I think that's important. But certainly the P5 and certainly on CT, beginning with U.S. leadership uh, in 2001, has been quite notable. Um, so I think the impact in many ways of the the geopolitical environment, um, in some ways, the CT agenda has been insulated from it because everyone saw it as a mutually beneficial safe space. Uh, over the last few years, that started to change, you know, um, not just in February, certainly with the invasion of Ukraine, but I think the last few years, you know, in 2020, in summer, we saw a first veto on counterterrorism, the first veto in 20 years, uh, which was quite startling. Um, I myself was part of the negotiation, so it was quite difficult. And it really was, you know, we felt it very strongly. Um, and I think that it was not just a consequence, you know, it was not just an indication of what was wrong or, you know, challenges in that specific negotiation or resolution, but I think it was indicative of a shifting relationship among the permanent members um, and that consensus kind of being very fragile or broken by that point. Yeah. And was it clear at that moment that you we were sort of entering a new phase or have we sort of backed into it quietly and, and now we find ourselves... Um, yeah, on the precipice of, of this uh, new venture uh, in the international cooperation space. I think it was starting to be clear that we were getting to a new space because just the fact, un unlike other resolutions, the fact of the veto alone and the willingness to use it was quite startling. Um, and so I think that alone was indicative that this was no longer kind of the sacred cow of, of you know, a UN um, policy space. Um, I certainly we couldn't have predicted this level of uh, fragmentation, but I think it was a reflection from a, you know, of a gradual pullback over the few years before that. Um, and certainly um, from sort of the US, UK, kind of France, um, in terms of the level of activity when you compare 2001 to 2000, sort of 16, 17. Yeah, I think that... Uh I understand that. I wanted to maybe push it a little bit more close to the present then and talk about specific cases that we are we are coping with as as a community right now. Um, indeed, uh, Russia's war in Ukraine has pushed um, most international institutions into deadlock. We look at the Security Council, uh, Global Counterterrorism Forum, um, but many other institutions where cooperation is essential, or at least consensus building is essential to the work that is done. It's very difficult right now um, to make progress. Similarly, um, we've seen increasing challenges on the uh, on the side of the Chinese as they are continuing to uh, lock down over a million Uyghurs under the uh, guise of um, tackling extremism. And yet we cannot get um, the UN um, organized enough and, and moving in the same direction to even have a debate uh, about those topics. So it feels, uh, you mentioned that, you know, we are uh, maybe more fractured than we had uh, even anticipated. Can you talk a little bit about 
what the community, international community looks like now, how it works, um, or, or how it doesn't work right now? Sure. I think that, um, you know, one of the challenges when we talk about the UN is which UN, right? And, and there are different spaces in the UN. When we talk about some of these issues in the Security Council, I don't see an easy way forward because certainly we have Russia and China wielding their vetoes. It has been extremely difficult to talk about the Uyghurs in the CT context. It has happened, and I think certainly the US and the UK were out front in making statements to that effect. Um, but that doesn't mean that it isn't possible in other spaces. And I think here the GA spaces have um, more to offer in terms of discussing these issues. Certainly on China and the Uyghurs, there's been more movement on the GA side uh, through the committees. Um, and so I think that's important to remember that there are some options outside the council where, you know, it's been, um, it's been raised. It's certainly the UK and others, um, have flagged quite prominently. I think, you know, the, the UN is always the sum of its member states and, and the politics of all of this is quite, um, it's a reflection of the politics and the relationships between states. I think, you know, from the get go, there's been challenges with human rights issues, um, you know, certainly conscious of Guantanamo and, and things like that. So, um, you know, the council has not always been a space where we that can be resolved. I think um, there are other spaces where the UN does work um, better. Um, For example, what what uh, what are you thinking about there? Well, I, you know, people keep saying the UN is deadlocked, but it's adopted about eight mission mandates, I think, uh, since February. And if you are a resident in one of the countries where the UN missions are, that might be something you're quite grateful for. And, and council members have been able to work on, on those mandates, even if they're technical rollovers. But there are negotiations taking place. Um, field offices, humanitarian entities are functioning. So um, I'm very conscious that council deadlock is not always the UN coming to deadlock. And, and you know, I certainly know many colleagues who are working together to get UN business done. Even in the CT space, we might not be seeing a new resolution anytime soon, but you have the executive director at CTED is continuing to do assessment missions and visiting states. Um, you have the Office of Counterterrorism providing capacity building assistance. So I guess, um, I guess I just wanted to unpack the fact that sometimes like deadlock in the council doesn't mean that the UN has come to a standstill. I think it's actually quite notable how much it's doing despite um, the deadlock in the council. So, and I, and I think that's one of the benefits of the UN space, right? That there's um, specific entities and field-facing missions that do sort of on-the-ground work. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for lifting the veil a little bit behind the, the UN. It is uh, tempting to see it as a monolith, but indeed it is, it is quite uh, a diverse and varied organization. Maybe focusing a bit more specifically on the human rights rule of law component, because indeed you, you mentioned that it has always been a challenge and there has been, even when there was consensus, you know, many problems with the international CT approach in terms of human rights compliance and rule of law compliance. But as an institution that is really focused on driving those uh, issues forward uh, at the here, you know, at the national level, but also the regional and international level, we're really curious to know from your point of view, where are the opportunities to continue to advance that agenda? Is it indeed at the different agency level? Is it more on the ground? How uh, how can organizations like ICCT and, and your own and others who want to work on these issues uh, continue to drive forward even while uh, the complexities of, uh, of the international scene um, remain very challenging? Sure. 
Um, I think there are opportunities are always there because you have member states who are always, you know, some are always keen to make sure these issues are, are up front. And I think that's very important to remember that as it's difficult sometimes to work with member states, that's also where there are opportunities. And certainly many have put forward uh, priorities on human rights. I think a couple of points are, are really key. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about the relationship between the counterterrorism agenda and human rights. Um, and the fact that sometimes resolutions are not as strong in terms of articulating human rights obligations. But of course, the human rights obligations are treaty obligations independent mm -hmm. of the counterterrorism mm -hmm. agenda. And I think, you know, whether we had 1373 mentioned human rights or not, those obligations still exist. So where the system, I think, can be used better is in terms of accountability and follow-up and sort of monitoring and, you know, compliance. I mean, for example, um, you know, a couple of years ago, UNITAD um, presented sort of definitive evidence about a genocide against the Yazidis. Um, they presented their findings and their research. There's been very little follow-up hmm. in terms of the CT space on anything in terms of accountability. Um, a few years ago, certainly when the Netherlands was on the council, there was a resolution adopted that looked at human trafficking, sexual violence, and financing terrorism, and allowed for designating individuals who have been found to do that um, under counterterrorism sanctions. No person has been put forward for sanctions yeah. listing. Those are the kinds of spaces where I think organizations like ICCT, us at the Sufan Center, can work with member states um, to actually use the mechanisms that have been created to advance accountability and kind of fulfill the original intention um, or opportunities presented in those resolutions. I think we have... The framework is quite complex, covers a lot of ground. I think we almost have everything we need on paper. <laughs> you know, I'm not calling for more resolutions, but I'm saying the ones that are there, there's a lot more that can be done, particularly in the human rights, accountability, sexual violence space. And it's something we've talked about as well internally here, the challenge of getting uh, that sort of precedent set where the first mover to take uh, an action against some of these, uh, against some of these options do you get a sense of, of why there is hesitation to um, to take up some of these resolutions and put them into practice? What What is the reason why we haven't, for example, uh, seen anyone onto that sanctions list, in your view? Ooh, I think it's a complicated Venn diagram of, you know, <laughs> um, political interests and sort of political engagement. You You need a sort of high level of political proactive, politically proactive um, representatives who want to do that. They're quite technical. So a lot of times by the by the time a state has come on to a security council, um, you know, the two years that non-permanent members are on goes by very fast. And for many states to go out on a limb on one issue like this means taking away resources from other big flagship issues. So some of the, it's kind of a marriage between the sublime and the technical, you know, <laughs> Many states have these great ambitions about doing big picture things, but when you get onto the council, it's uh, it can feel a bit like death by a thousand cuts mm. in terms of the workload um, and in terms of the technical detail. Um, so I, I think that's my answer. I'm I'm hoping that there isn't something more behind it. And you know, accountability is is always a challenging longer term investment. And I think for many states, uh, dare I say, it's the more unsexy option because it's a long grinding road. Yeah. But I think there are opportunities. And I think the uh, negotiators who created those spaces really meant for them to be picked up. So 
I hope there will be states. No, great. I'd, I'd love to talk just one more uh, second about the accountability side. Mm-hmm. What role is it accountability between member states that you see that is lacking? Or is it something that as a civil society, we need to be better at holding uh, UN member states to account on what is accountability in your mind and what is missing right now that we can do better on? Sure. I mean, there's there's many answers to the question. On on one hand, you know, there I, since about 2014, every resolution that has talked about ISIS, right? And at the same time, we've seen globally prosecutions for ISIS-related crimes are quite low. So that is a member state responsibility about, you know, investigations and prosecutions. Um, like I said, the example of the, the UNITAD evidence is really quite striking. They've presented all that and we haven't really seen it picked up and used. Um, there is, and so, so that's on a member state level. I think there is a real need to make sure that the crimes that were pushed by these resolutions and member states called for are actually, um, you know, they're actually prosecutions for them. But on, among the council members too, there is generally, a lack of accountability for non-compliance, right? As it's quite technical, but, you know, the executive director visits states, they produce these reports. Many states, including kind of more progressive, like-minded states, are very uncomfortable making these reports public, which makes it very difficult then for civil society members or other parts of the UN to hold those states accountable through the council mechanism, um, and very few states, as I said, are willing to take each other on in a public forum. So there's many layers where I think the accountability um, question is um, sort of left unfulfilled. Great. I, I mean, accountability is something that I think is is vital to our work and I, I know to your own at the Sufon Center. Um, so it's a, something that we want to keep coming back to every time that uh, we have an opportunity to. So thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. Um, I wanted to spend one more uh, minute talking uh, about maybe how this affects Europe. We are a European institution. Uh, we have a global reach, but indeed many of the folks who will listen to this podcast will be situated in a European country, um, thinking about their own national challenges and how they can contribute to wider international uh, CT agenda. So I wanted to ask you specifically with an eye towards Europe, do you still see uh, what role do you still see for European values? Um, you know, we, we know what those are. Europe champions them quite loudly. Um, human dignity, human rights, uh, the rule of law, the holistic approach, those kind of things. How do those fit into the UN architecture? And um, yeah, what what shape should they take in the next coming uh, years? That's a great question. And I'm, I'm glad you asked because I think you know, there's, as I think the current theme of our conversation has been challenges, but a lot of opportunities. And as we talked about within the UN system, in the Security Council, the member states really have the power to move things. So I think for Europe, what's particularly valuable is there's always at least one, if not multiple, European members on the council. And there are opportunities there, I think, to coordinate for stronger um, make a stronger push for certain things. And I think first of all would be to hold the council accountable as per UN values. So, oh, sorry, the UN accountable as per EU values. So, you know, we, you, you mentioned things like Xinjiang, you mentioned the Uyghurs. There has not really been a, a push for a debate on that topic by European members. Um, you know, that's one example. It's just a, you know, illustrative example. But I think European states have an opportunity to put their values onto the council's agenda 
much more aggressively and perhaps in a co- more coordinated manner, which would help. And so I think that that is quite important to hold, um, hold those values kind of, uh, throughout all the challenges of Security Council decision making to keep those values up front. Yeah. I think much more can be done on that. There's, I know there's a lot of great intention. There's been a lot of great ambition, but not always has that really been apparent when you see uh, the program of work yeah. for the, for the council. So I think there's a lot more European states can do that. And I think when we look at European values, the internal debate um, is also very visible to other states, right? Mm-hmm. So how Europe handles things like migration. Um, and that very sort of dangerous discussion about migration and CT issues. Um, I think that's going to be very important, especially in the years to come, and is an important scene, not scene setter, sort of like a model setter, yeah, right, yeah. For, for other countries. You have to live the values uh, exactly. in your work. And then, exactly. Yeah. It's kind of that say-do gap, yeah. and, and other states are seeing that, and we hear about it yeah. a lot. So I think that's a very important thing for Europe to remember, that what happens in Europe doesn't stay in Europe, <laughs> you know, it's it's being seen abroad. Um, I think European states played a really important role in terms of instituting due process and the sanctions committee, for example. Um, those are kinds of places where, you know, European states could do a lot more, um, not just in the CT space, but maybe duplicate that kind of effort and others to make sure due process um, is, is part and parcel of council work. Um, so I, I think ironically, you know, there's actually more opportunity to be a bit more assertive and, and proactive um, because it's a particularly fractious period. Interesting observation, maybe to to end on that, to have a silver lining around the uh, the, the storm clouds that are currently brewing with us. Um, thank you very much, Noreen, for your time, for your thoughts. Uh, we really appreciated uh, you coming in and speaking with us today. This does mark the end of today's episode. Um, thank you very much, everyone, for listening, and we hope to uh, see you tune in to next episode. Thank you. This podcast was created by the International Center for Counterterrorism and is part of the series, The Global Politics of Counterterrorism. You can find more episodes and information about our work on our website, www.icct.nl. This show is available on any major podcast service, so please subscribe and spread the word.